<laughs> I'm Jonathan Capehart in today for Leonard Lopate. Let's be honest, many of us have internet search histories filled with medical questions. Some are maybe more embarrassing than others. But with me now for today's Please Explain About Bodies is James Hamblin, author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. Hamblin, whose book is published by Doubleday, is an MD and a writer and senior editor for The Atlantic. And he's here to answer our most pressing questions like, if I lose a contact lens in my eye, can I... (laughs) Can it get into my brain? And what's an itch? Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you for having me. Actually, that is a great first question to start on. What is an itch? That is an enduring sort of mystery. So I I thought it would be a a relatively simple answer, but it turns out not to be. (laughs) We're seeing springing up some, some clinics around the country that are dealing exclusively with people with chronic itch and trying to figure this out because... Sometimes it's simple, straightforward, an allergy, a, a, a mosquito bite. But sometimes people have these itches that doctors can't find a cause for, and they, it can ruin your life. Well, yeah, I mean, is it is it psychological? Is it? It's all of those things. For a long time, people have been referred to psychiatrists, but then some people say, no, that's not that's not it. There's some, there's something else here. And pharma hasn't come up with a pill <laughs> where you know you get Samuel L. Jackson or somebody to stand there and say. You know, you've got an itch. itch. Just a regular itch. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's a pill for it. Yeah. And then a long list of side effects. Yeah. I, I, it would it would be a very long list. Uh, I there's nothing perfect out there yet. No. no. Well, I I should tell listeners uh, we want to hear from you, not just the two of us sitting here talking about itch. What questions do you have about the body? Remember, there is no question too small or too silly or too hilarious. Call us at two one two. 433-WNYC. That's 212-433-9692. Now, let's, the real first question is this book. Why do you write this book, and who's your target audience? Um, I, I think there's kind of something in here for everyone, which probably a lot of writers say, but, but for <laughs> real, most people who have questions about bodies, I, I get a lot of them being a writer, a and a doctor, MD and a in, doctor in the media. So people write to me, and friends are constantly asking me things. So I decided I should put them all in one place, and that way I could just refer people to the book instead of instead of so every time. So every time someone asks you a question, you just reach into your into your bag, a satchel, and you just hand them a copy of your book. Yes, exactly. Okay, so let let's talk about this notion of of normalcy. What is it, Ooh. and how do how do you address it in the book? It's a huge question, and it's 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 kind of the the basis, the foundation of a lot of the questions that you get. Is this normal? Is that normal? And people want to know, you know, where they fall on some sort of state of yes or no. And it turns out most most things about our bodies, like there's kind of a bell curve, like like blood pressure, of where most people tend to fall and what can be normal. Um, and then within any person's life and situations, social situation, there are degrees of gray areas we need to deal with as far as what is normal and what you what you're okay with mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. what you're okay yeah with. There are a lot of things i'm not okay with but they're normal <laughs> uh what, what is is it anotology or am i pronouncing it in uh, agnotology that, that may well it's a relatively new word it? so i say agnotology agnotology um, and how does it relate to to your work yeah um it, it is uh the, the study of not knowing and it is uh uh related to the, the purposeful spread of ignorance which sort of kind of um uh germane to current 
political discussions, but mm. also uh, for a long time has been a big part of science. Uh, and the classical example is uh, the tobacco industry. For decades, um, you know, had sci emerging scientific evidence that uh, smoking causes lung cancer. And um, and even that became clear and it became consensus. And the, the tobacco industry tried not really to refute that evidence, but just to plant the seed that it, maybe it doesn't. Um, maybe we don't really know. Can we really know anything? Um, and so they just tried to create the idea that we don't. There, there is no expertise. And this is called al alternative causation. Yeah, that so, you know, experts disagree. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Maybe cigarettes are totally fine. And I think that just having that doubt uh, made people think, okay, why not? I, I'll keep smoking because you know we don't really know. And and, and does it concern you as as a doctor? that um, that truth and facts seem to be, I, I don't know, like a commodity. Like you either, whatever is truth and fact to you is truth and fact to you. And, and if you don't agree with me, um, you don't have the truth or the facts. Right, right. Um, it's something where it, it's important to be uh, talking, you know, it, it, accepting of different people's understandings of the world and their own experiences but at the same time we need to admit that there are things that we can know about the world there are scientific facts and we can that they're not all just political opinions right so i'm i'm john the k part in today for leonard lopate and i'm speaking with uh james hamblin dr james hamblin he goes by jim and he's the author of the book if our bodies could talk a guide to operating and maintaining a human body you compiled a list of a hundred questions um and they are some of them are straightforward like what is an itch and some of them are really sort of laugh out loud funny <laughs> um but before i get to my my favorites let's go to chris from princeton chris you are on the line Hi. Yes, what is your question? Uh, just curious. I had the flu uh, last week, and I'm just wondering what causes the uh, chills and body ache that accompany the flu. Yeah. Um, that's that's usually related to a fever. Um, your your body trying to eradicate this microorganism that has taken over. It's the, the, the inflammatory response. That's the interesting thing about, about most of when we get a cold or the flu. Uh, the symptoms that we're experiencing are actually our bodies, the, the helpful responses of our bodies trying to expel these in, invaders. So those symptoms mean that we're healing. And and what about this whole thing when you do get a cold or the flu, the starve a cold, feed a fever? Are those old wives' tales, you know, lore, old-fashioned stuff? Or what, did they have any basis in... I can't. I am not up on the latest as to if there is evidence on that for sure. But we know that it, it's, it shouldn't have a major effect. Eat well always. Stay right. hydrated always. Sleep. Yes. Yes. Get it. Yeah. Get sleep and, and stay away from people and don't shake their hands. <laughs> don't go to work. Okay. Don't don't go to work. Telecommute. Yes. All right. So one of the okay. So you have in your table of contents the questions, and you you answer them. But the, the okay. Well, there's there's one that I am <laughs> so curious about that I am not going to read over the air. Just I would tell you that it's on page two fifty four. Right. So um, take out your book. It's take out your book. Turn to page two fifty four, and you will see 
what it is. But the question I have, this is an interesting question. Um, the other one, not the one. Okay. Why do males have nipples? Mm. Um, this is actually an homage to a book titled Why Do Men Have Nipples? Uh, which came out in 2005 and is sort of the basis of the idea of this book, which is it was it was uh, bodily trivia, a QA. And I wanted to take that in a direction where we kind of did a little more research. I went out and explored and spoke to experts and tried to understand not just uh, why men have nipples, but why we care about that. So the basic answer to it is it's the same structure in men and women. They form before before we start to diverge toward uh, sexually uh, dimorphic pathways we uh, just we, we form nipples um so the interesting thing about it is then that there are laws in certain states where female nipples cannot be displayed publicly and male nipples can and it's the same on facebook and instagram and weird We're, double standard right. for the exact same organ right topless topless speeches the, the the whole thing yeah okay um another where did it go oh it, it can you wait <laughs> I want to know where this question came from. <laughs> Can I really die from popping a pimple on my nose? That's a rumor that people where did uh, that come people from? pass around. Um, I don't know where it got started. And there's some – so that that's the tough part of, about answering this is um, there's some – theoretical very tiny possibility that, that this could happen that you can have it, every time you pop a pimple just like every time you brush your teeth you introduce some bacteria into the bloodstream um and when it's in the area of your face that drains backward into a part of the brain called the cavernous sinus um you could introduce an infection into that area which could cause a blood clot which could be fatal but that it would it would be a very rare yeah, that sounds like a whole lot of hurdles to jump in yeah. order to go from, oh, my God, Clearasil's not working, to mm-hmm. morning. Yeah, so <laughs> just, I guess, play it safe. Play, but yeah. I, I, I don't want to scare people either. Right, right. But it's good to know. Yeah, that, yeah uh, it's more about learning the interesting anatomy. and, and Yeah, yeah it's, that's page 330. <laughs> Let's go to Maddie in Brooklyn. Maddie, you have a question for Jim. Yes. Um, So I've been reading this book called Woman, an Intimate Geography by Natalie Angier, and I just read the chapter on breasts uh, yesterday, and she argues that there's no real evolutionary or physiological purpose for breasts, or, or at least for their size, um, and uh, you know, because there's such a huge, there's no other organ or body part. Uh, she she argues that um, has such a huge range in size uh, from person to person. You know, you can have a woman, you can be standing next to a woman that has a breast twenty times the size of you, and there's there's really no other body part like that. And I was just wondering uh, if your guest today has any uh, sort of ideas to like why what's up with breasts <laughs> what's okay up with breasts? that's the title of my next book <laughs> uh they no that's a great question i make the same point in here too that that's the biggest variation in size uh of, of any of any body part um you know if someone was 20 times as tall as the person next to them we that would be right extremely odd um, so the, the the idea, I guess, behind uh, is uh, sexual dimorphism. Behind a lot of reasons that we um, different sexes appear different is that we've sort of selected for traits that we 
preferred the way they appear in a mate. Um, and there's also an idea that uh, they could symbolize uh, fertility uh, to potential mates. Okay, Maddie. <clears throat> this is this is your fault. I'm just going <laughs> to say this is your fault because I am now going to read the question I wasn't going to read since we are um, Let's do um we were talking about breasts. So now <laughs> you do have a question um and that is how big is the average clitoris? And where this I, this comes from a person who uh teaches at Stanford as well. A colleague of of Dr. Proctor, who we were talking about just a second ago, who talks about agnotology. And um, it's basically an idea. There was this article in uh, in Science, uh, How Big is the Average Penis, which was very popular for a long time. And it's something that people joke about. uh, (laughs) And yet yet the the analogous part uh, in a female clitoris, something that people don't talk about and people aren't aware of. Uh, even though there are a lot of anatomic similarities between the two uh, organs. Uh, and and on page 254, where the, this question is answered, you know, you talk, you, you talk about the um, um, Stanford professor, and it makes a very good point. Men can tell you everything you would want to know, whether you want to know it or not, about their, uh, about their private part. And yet... Folks, I I didn't even think that there's variation um, in the analogous female. Um, yeah, I mean genitalia. if we if we can if we can say penis, we can say clitoris. Correct. Uh, yeah, and it's and, not on this list of words. I can't. Say. <laughs> good. I can't good. Say. That's why I'm good. Yeah, yeah. But this question comes back to this product, um, uh, so-called female Viagra, that was in the news last year. Right. Um, it constantly keeps coming back in in the news, and um, the idea that you sort of that that was a drug that was targeted toward um, the neurological system and increasing libido, um, and the whole search for a female Viagra ignores the point that the clitoris is um, erectile tissue which fills with blood, uh, just like a, the penis does, and that. Uh, the cardiovascular system works the same way in, right. in men and women, uh, so there are analogous uh, pathways there, mm-hmm. and it's not we might not need this whole new reinvention of something. Let's go to a, a real caller <laughs> with, a, with, a, with, a, <laughs> the with 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 a real question. Um, Glenn, well, no, Rocky in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Rocky, what's your question hey. for Jim? Hey, how are you doing, Doc? Um, thank you, John. Um, my question is on the other end of the reproductive scale when you get to menopause, because, you know, we talk about all of the things about fertility, but what happens at the other end of this cycle? You know, what have you have to say to women who are suffering from hot flashes, you know, all those other unfortunate um, symptoms that your fertility has come to an end? My yeah. mom—that's a great question. My mom whips out that fan, and she's just fanning because of a, a hot. Flat. Where does that come yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. So it ha- it has to do with uh, changes in sex hormones later in life in women, and it decreases in estrogen, relative increases in in uh, 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 testosterone and other hormones. So um, it, it is something that uh, it's a use case individual scenario where symptoms can be can be treated i want i want to defer to people's individual relationships with doctors and hormone replacements are um have pluses and minuses to them so it's a 
tough thing to get into, but something that we should, uh, you know, yeah, not not be afraid to talk about for sure. I we have another call, and I have so many other questions, but I'm going to go to a break so we have a little more time on the other side. Okay, uh, and uh, talk about some more stuff. My guest is James Hamblin, MD, a senior editor at the Atlantic. His latest book is "If Our Bodies Could Talk." And we are taking your calls. The number is 212-433-9692. There is no question too small, too silly, too hilarious, too seemingly inane (laughs) that Dr. Jim cannot answer (laughs) and probably doesn't have the answer to. I'm Jonathan Capehart. In today for Leonard Lopate, this is WNYC and WNYC.org. We'll be right back. I'm Jonathan Capehart, in today for Leonard Lopate, and I am speaking with James Hamlin. He is a doctor. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he is the author of If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body as if it were like a machine. Because it is a machine. Yeah. I mean, in in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's go to Glenn in Westchester. Glenn has an interesting question. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a constantly running nose, uh, and it has something to do with the colds. Uh, in fact, I really get them, and I, I suspect that uh, um, one of the benefits of my runny nose uh, is that I don't get colds. It's kind of like uh, salmon spawning. Uh, the germs try and spawn up into my nasal passages and but get flushed out before they reach their destination. I'm just wondering uh, what your take on on that is. I think that sounds totally plausible. Plausible. I don't know of any large-scale experiments on this subject, but yeah, um, the more that you can be clearing out those passages seems... Well, yeah, and you've never had a cold, Glenn? Never. No, no, I can't say I've never had a cold, but uh, I'm I'm at 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 an advanced age, uh, and uh, I, I would, I have to say, I haven't had a cold in about ten years. Wow! Um, and maybe it's uh, hard to tell because your nose is already running. <laughs> oh, there no, you there go, are, Glenn. There, there are other symptoms yes, besides uh, a runny are. nose of, of a cold, uh, and I don't have those. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, and maybe part and parcel of this is I, I salivate quite a quite a lot, um, and. Uh, um, anyway, just thank you. Thought I'd, thought yeah. I'd ask. Th- thank you very much, Glenn. I, Doc, um, I, you know, different people salivate different amounts. It's 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 actually better than having dry mouth, which a lot of people, uh, you know, is, is a True. serious thing and yeah. it's a serious side effect of a lot of medications. Of too, medications, so. there's that 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 ad yeah, where the cannabis. tongue comes out and turns into like the Sahara with a cactus on it. Oh. But speaking of uh, saliva, I know, right? I think it's the sound effect that comes with it. You do have a question. Why do I drool? Speaking of salivating, <laughs> why do I drool when I nap and not when I sleep? Yeah. And uh, the, the answer that I found was that you do drool when you sleep if you drool when you nap. It's just that that happens early when you're sort of falling asleep. So you're more likely to, if you just slept for 20 minutes, notice that you've drooled a little bit. Whereas if you fall asleep and then stay asleep for seven hours, uh, it'll it'll be gone by the time you wake up. Oh, well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I'm the, I drool when I nap. I have drooled 
um, while sleeping, and I wonder how long has my mouth been open because it's like, wow, how did yeah. that happen? Um, why do I crave terrible food late at night? Hmm, that is a big question, but part of the reason when your body is shutting down for the evening, your blood sugar drops, and that's part of everything just going into sort of mini hibernation mode. Uh, if you're not up moving around and thinking and uh, walking, you don't need your blood sugar to be high, so you, your body's saying go to sleep, but if you push past that and you're staying up and it's 2 a.m., even if you were asleep, you wouldn't have eaten anything you would have woken up and been sort of hungry but not that hungry but if you if you're out partying and it's 2 a.m then everybody wants pizza uh because your blood sugar yes or pancakes uh i think that's when ihop does almost all of their business um <laughs> it's 24 hours i guess in yeah places. so your blood sugar is low at that time of night because think your body's meant to be asleep your your cycles are usually you're asleep at that and point. so okay so the folks who are out you know, trolling the streets looking for IHOP or pancakes at two in the morning, four in the morning. Yeah. Um, this question um, is a good one. Does alcohol really kill brain cells? That is this enduring question, which is it's an important example of something that comes up a lot in, in the book that w- when you look at a CT scan of the brain of someone who's, who's chronically uh, severely alcoholic, um, it, it will lose mass. The brain will be smaller than someone uh, of the same age who who had didn't have alcoholism. At the same time, the, you hear a lot of studies about having a glass of wine or two a day have, being beneficial and and not certainly not being dangerous and not killing brain cells. So there's in a lot of things in life. Uh, it's all about the dose. The dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reminding everyone that you can call in and ask Jim uh, your own questions. The number is 212-433-9692. 212-433-9692. When we were in the break, I asked you if there were any other topic areas related to your book that uh, we should hit. And you said dying. Mm. Dying Dying is a is a good one. Dying. It's one of the six parts in the book is uh, the dying parts. Um, it was important to me to include because I think it's something that we're it, we don't. It's not enjoyable to talk about, and a lot of people are just it's off the table. Out about it to talk about. Um, there, there are a lot of things to consider. One of the things is is the the funeral industry. Um, a lot of there's a sub industry of people who are who are going into debt, taking out loans to pay for family members. Funerals for you know seven thousand dollar caskets and, and, and embalming process and a, an elaborate uh, uh, funeral and um, and I think and then people dying in in hospital wards where they they didn't want to spend their their final days and mm-hmm. I think if, if we just talked about this and talked about what people really wanted and what would be meaningful to them and, and then. Um, a lot of people would end up approaching the whole process differently. Did you say it or did I see it in the book, Green Dying? Yeah, Green green Burials. Green Burials. Green, green Dying. It, it, it's sort of, uh, yeah, thinking about what is, as we have now, uh, 7 billion people uh, on the planet, what is a way that you can um, not be... Uh, being too uh, unsustainable, up. I guess. Right. It's not, yeah, there's space, but there's also when we embalm ourselves, we fill ourselves with uh, a slurry of chemicals that the <laughs> embalmers need to actually wear ventilation masks to, to be around. It's carcinogenic. Um, and, and then you're burying this big, uh, I, I, you know, 
part of a tree that you had to cut down to bury yourself into the ground. Uh, and um, so people have moved towards other uh, ways of, of going. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have a, a call. Peter in Manhattan, I'm going to come to you in one second, but a woman um, called and wanted to know, clearly she didn't want to ask this uh, on air, but back to the clitoris question. She wanted to know what effect size and depth of the clitoris has on orgasms. She says it's often misunderstood. Does he know? Do you know? Oh, um, I maybe should should pass on this one i think there are correlations between size and um different types of orgasms uh and what women uh how women achieve orgasm based on uh, the conformation of their of the clitoris but i am not an expert on that area okay peter in manhattan you have a question yes uh, good afternoon gentlemen um my question is uh on the more serious side, and I was wondering why the whole class of autoimmune diseases is proving so intractable to treat. Yeah, um, and, and why it's on the rise right now. There are a lot of questions about the the autoimmune diseases being the kind where your body is essentially attacking itself, uh, causing causing damage, um, sort of potentially attacking a, a, a pathogen or invader that isn't there or that used to be there and has, has gone, but the body stays in super inflammatory mode. Um, huge topic. Uh, uh, and it, then when you, you try to suppress the immune system, then that leaves a person susceptible to infections because we like our immune systems. We try to boost our immune systems. That's another section in the book of these products that promise to boost your immune system, which I find sort of interesting because so many people have a problem with a hyperactive immune system Already, so. do those immune system boosting things actually work? Uh, that that the most of them are based around vitamin C and are promising to protect from from colds, and and that is a myth. Um, unless you're so vitamin C deficient that you have scurvy, um, it doesn't protect protect from from colds. Um, in fact, it can give a false sense of security if you think you don't need to, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Not be shaking hands with someone who has a cold, for example, because you took your vitamin C pill, then you're actually right. high at higher risk. Like you've got your, your shield. Yeah. Um, why do so many people die of dehydration? Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the leading causes of death globally is uh, dehydration from infectious diarrhea. And um, so there are all kinds, especially in um, disaster zones or less developed parts of the world, diarrhea is such a serious issue um, and and cholera still remains one of mm-hmm. one of these causes uh, of uh, of infectious diarrhea, which is extremely hard to treat. But um, what I get into in, in the in the book is the story of the discovery of oral rehydration solution, which basically, if you can drink enough of this stuff, you can survive cholera uh, almost um, almost always. If you if you can stay hydrated, you, you will survive. Mm-hmm. It's just about getting this this oral rehydration solution to the places where it's needed because it's perfectly calculated to hydrate the dehydrated human body. Andrew in Manhattan uh, has a call. Andrew, what is your question for Jim? I've grown up with house pets and have never had a problem. And why all of a sudden when I turned 20 to 29, I became really allergic to my cat and also to dust when I never had a problem before. That's such a, such an interesting question. 
And if there is an answer to it, I am not the person who knows it. I'm sorry. You, but, it's not covered in the book? No. That, 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 you, you know, know, I mean, there's necessarily, a, I mean, there's a I hundred questions, so I couldn't <laughs> get through all of them. I couldn't them, get but. to everything. But that's one of the fascinating things about allergies, right? That some people will develop them later in life. And it would seem that if you've been around something uh, always, then you, you should be fine with it. But uh, it, it happens. So and, we – I can't let you go. Um, uh, without talking about the videos that you do for the Atlantic, um, that are are hilarious. They are <laughs> they are absolutely hilarious. They deal with serious serious topics, but you you do it in just this this humorous but dry humorous way that incorporates. Um, you know, you have to listen to what you're saying. You have to watch what you're doing in these videos to get the full message. Why? You. And, and, and you're a you're a doctor. You are <laughs> you are a serious doctor and a serious writer. Why do you feel um, drawn to tackle these topics in this way? You know, I I think there's plenty of. Uh totally dry and serious medical professionals out there and that's the way most people relate to their doctors and to to uh, medical medical information um and i enjoy uh, making things that are entertaining so i have fun with it and i think and and i hope that there's an audience of people who uh who want that element of it too did did you come up with the idea of doing the videos or did the folks at the Atlantic come to you and say hey you, know, <laughs> you you've got a quirky sense of humor uh, and you write about these things. How about you do them in video form? Um, yeah, it, w- it was a little bit of both. I think we both thought that it would be a good idea to try. And then we were uh, fortunate that people seemed to like them. And then it's kind of escalated. And I it had President Obama on the show, th- th- uh, well, I guess now 2016. But, uh, <laughs> well, because like, it's, it's – I was going to tw- say this year. But, 2017. Yeah. Oh, I mean, w- within the last, within the last yeah, 12 months. Yeah. Um, um, there was something about the the videos. Oh, I started watching the video of Tinder for exercise, mm. and I only got about a minute and a half in before I had to go and do something else. What was that about? Oh, um, yeah, it's about the idea of uh, workout partners as a as a motivational strategy, um, and there are actual springing up some sort of social networking sites where you can find someone who. You don't have to ruin one of your pre-existing friendships by trying to uh, get competitive in the workout zone. Right. You can actually find someone who's looking, who's the same goals as you, same fitness level, and you just get together over working out, and you hold each other accountable. And you might make a new friend. You might keep it keep it to the exercise realm, but uh, it, it, it's shown to motivate people when they're accountable to someone and, else. And do, and do you have an exercise buddy? Uh, I don't. Do, I, I, do I like to take that. Oh, yeah, I okay. do. <laughs> I like to check. take that time as, to just clear my head and probably to listen to some good radio. I, well, yeah, I'm the same way. I don't. Do you have a trainer? You ever do a trainer? No. Yeah, I don't want anybody yelling at me. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> it's the one time of day people aren't yelling at me. So, okay, so before we end, I've already asked you about your videos, but now I have to ask you about um, the Internet and how the Internet has impacted how people take care of their bodies. Has it made it better or worse? Yeah. Ooh, I can't choose. I think I, I'm generally pro democratization of information people having access to as much as they can uh but it's it is tough to sift through 
um, and know what to make of everything. So people are coming into their doctors now with a stack of papers and they're sure what their diagnosis is because they read it on WebMD and they basically want the doctor to just write the prescription because they know. Um, so then doctors become this sort of filters uh, instead of the keepers of all information um, playing an increasingly a role as a, as a filter for, for what people have already heard. Um, so it's changing the profession in good ways and bad. Is WebMD credible? I mean, that's the thing. Democratization of information is great. But that means, like, who who can you trust? Right. Um, I, I, from, from what I know, WebMD started uh, in a way that a lot of us thought about the Internet, where just, it's just the Internet. Let's just type, 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 post. It's just a blog. Um, and then they've gone to a, a much more rigorous peer-reviewed process for the information that they put out there. But you can be reading accurate information and... Um, if you don't have the training to apply a diagnosis, to know if that diagnosis really does describe you, you can misuse that information. Right. I, 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 and that would be yeah. a bad thing. Potentially. It's worth keeping a relationship with an expert. Right. And yeah. with your physician. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I've, <laughs> I've been speaking with James Hamblin, MD, senior editor at The Atlantic. His latest book is If Our Bodies Could Talk. A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs>